you possibly pick one of these floor fillers to introduce my guests for today? Back in 1997, Five first hit the charts with their blend of hip-hop rock and bad boy pop and went on to sell 25 million records in the four years before their split. But the boys reunited, albeit there's only three of them now, and after 20 years, they're releasing new music. Here to talk about their lives after that thing they did, please welcome Sean, Scott and Richie from Five. Scott, Sean, Richie, good morning. Hey Genevieve. Hello. How are we all today in our respective Zoom locations? Zoom in. Well, this is a weird one for me because I'm at my house, Sean's at my house, but me and Sean <laughs> are doing the same Zoom from different Zooms in different rooms. <laughs> and I appreciate it. It stops the echo. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've got to have a room to Zoom. Yes. <laughs> um, I'll kick things off by saying, Scott, uh, we actually have something in common because uh, you participated in the celebrity hairdressing show Celebrity Scissorhands back in 2008. And I actually appeared in the same series. Please tell me I didn't cut your hair. No, you didn't. I was one of Zamo's clients um, or Lee McDonald, as he's otherwise known. He was awful. <laughs> Very complimentary. Lee, Lee, Lee didn't have a good time. He wasn't very good at cutting the hair. That is why I did not let him anywhere near my hair with a pair of scissors. Uh, but what you mean? You went to have your hair cut, and you didn't allow him to touch it. I I went to have my hair styled by Lee, so he, he didn't he didn't touch it with scissors. Um, but Zamo did say that he kept up with some of his hairdressing skills uh, with his son, especially in lockdown. So I was wondering, you have four kids, including twin girls. Are you the resident hairdresser in your house or perhaps have given the boys a bit of a trim? Um, in lockdown, I cut both boys' hair. Um, I cut my own hair in lockdown as well. And I have, still like 2008, as you say, when I'd done the show, I still cut hair to this day, as in when my friends can't get to the hairdressers, I get phone calls. And as of last week, I cut one of my friend's hair. I must say, I gave him an awesome haircut and he was so chuffed and he said it was better than his barber. So, yeah, I've done well in that show. I come third. Probably should have won it. The thing is, he's, he's also, um, he's really humble as well. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very, very humble. Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Uh, rewinding back to the beginning, before the 20 million record sales, the number ones, the world tours, the Brit Awards, the MTV Awards, five were put together by Simon Cowell and auditions were held to find the edgy take that that he was looking for. Um, but Sean, you were just a baby. You were only 15 years old at the time and you were a bit of a music prodigy because you've been writing songs since you were nine. You'd won the Yamaha Young Composer Award and you were the only person who auditioned for the band with your own song. So did you know what you were letting yourself in for? Um, no, I thought originally, I thought, I'll go and I'll do an audition for the band the band will fail, but it'll be an in into the music industry and I'll meet some people in the business and then I'll be able to maybe do some writing or something like that. I never expected to uh, go to the top of the charts, play arena shows, tour the world. It just didn't go uh, what was in my head at all. <laughs> Is that what you honestly thought? It would yeah. fail. You thought, I'll do it, but it'll fail. Yeah, yeah I've, I just thought nine times out of ten, these things don't work, but I'll meet some people in the business. It was just like a foot in the door. <laughs> wow so after you all became the chosen ones you all moved into a house together so i'm imagining 
Four teenage guys and a 21-year-old living together. Scotland must have been carnage. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, it was it was ridiculous. And I, I remember one one night in particular. And yes, you know, maybe shouldn't be promoting underage drinking, but you know, whatever, it's fine. Um, me and Sean, I was 17, Sean was 15 at the time. And the boys went to the pub. So Rich Abs, he was meant to live there, but he never lived there. He was in Hackney. And um, me and Sean got very, very drunk on um, on beers. And they were really, really weak beers, like really weak. And we decided that... They were like 1%. Yeah. It was how many of them we could drink to get drunk. And um, we drank far too many. And I mean, bottle after bottle after bottle after bottle. And crate after crate after crate. <laughs> we... Um, when the boys come back from the pub, we were more we were more drunk than them. <laughs> it was a, it was a good night, wasn't it, Sean? Yeah, I just remember I can uh, it wasn't bottles, it was cans because I can remember it was I, cans. I remember wasn't it called Kestrel? Astra or something. It was called Astra, but Astra. Astra. I just remember I can just see a massive heap of cans at, you know in like the by the front door. We were just like stacked up. Yeah, we had a good night. Sean, you had your own room. How did you angle that? I just got there first, so I just set me set me key <laughs> set me keyboard up, chuck me bag under the bed, and just just, uh, just put your you know your claim down. Yeah, but you missed you missed the trick, really, Sean. Because mm. so I shared with Abs, but Abs was never there. So I had the biggest room. Sean's room was like a box, but it was on his own, and he had his own room. I had the biggest room in the house, and I was essentially on my own. So I win. Well done, Scott. <laughs> really proud of you, mate. Well done, mate. Yes, sure. Winning. Um, Simon Cowell wanted a band with Edge. And I mean, he definitely got it because I remember at the time there were headlines about you burning down a hotel or you'd been in fights. But Simon. That was an accident. Yeah. Can we just say we didn't burn down a hotel, that a fire began by accident that we were accidentally responsible for? But the press span it as something that you had done to create this or perpetuate the bad boy image i guess simon cow loved it anytime there was like i remember the, the the time when the fire happened in ireland i remember being nervous thinking oh my god simon cow is going to go like mental he's going to go ballistic and he he literally went what are you worried about so that you can't buy that sort of press guys it's amazing <laughs> and, and, um, and, and we remember going oh wow okay so there's no problem here just do what you like mm. start fires start fights it's fine it's all good. <laughs> and so you were catapulted into fame. And of course, you had a very big, adoring female fan base. And as five young guys with girls screaming after them every day, everywhere you went, and that's every guy's dream, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, there, there's it is amazing. Like, certainly when you're on stage, you know, that's what you want. And it's like, I always say, it's like uh, energy. The more energy they give you, the more energy you have to give back you like turn it into something and give it back but um yeah it was a, it was strange to have you know over 10 maybe 20 or 30 girls camped out at the end of your drive on a normal street kind of thing <laughs> um that you couldn't move around your house without sort of screams going on that's weird it feels very strange it was mental and and something that I, I remember, which I, I don't I don't know whether the boys know this happened, but they're going to find out now if they don't. Um, like not that long ago, like as in after the band years, probably in around 
2006, maybe. I um I had a stalker. Wow. Oh yeah. Like a full blown stalker, who like camped outside my house and they booked a hotel and that stalker ended up getting arrested because they'd been hanging around like the school where my kids went and um, got really, really bad to the point where the police knocked on my door and said, you've had to deport this stalker who's a fan of yours, who um, has basically threatened yours and your um, your wife's life because she believed, this stalker believed that she was meant to be with me and, my, and me and my wife weren't meant to be together and I was meant to be married to her. Mm. And um, she'd booked a hotel locally and she had like she'd put like posters up on the wall, and she'd like there was she had threatening letters. She was poorly. She was poorly. Yeah, she was very very poorly. She got deported back to Italy. Um, that was a bit. That was a bit mental. I mean, on on kind of linked to that, I guess we were you not allowed to have girlfriends publicly to remain desirable to your fans. They tried that for a little while, but it, it was never no. They good. did, mate. They no. They never actually did. No, they. Didn't. I, I don't remember ever being told that. I, no, they did. I remember them saying, "It's absolutely fine. Just have a girlfriend. Be yourself." That's what I was told at the very, very beginning. When when I was with Kerry, they tried it on. They were like, "Oh, you know, you're not going to be. It's not going to be as appealing if you say this, say that." And, and I was like. I don't want to lie to the fans. I just want to be honest, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it, yeah, so it, it didn't wash with me. And I was like, no, mm. no. Unusually for a boy band that's been put together, you wrote on the majority of the tracks on your first album and that continued through with your subsequent albums. And for comparison, I think One Direction had three songs credited to them on their debut and you had about 13. Was that always the plan or did you fight for that? It was something that, definitely early on we we all sort of spoke about and that we wanted to have we didn't we didn't just want to be told what to do on every level and often that meant that there was a battle and i think where it ended up creatively and everything that was a, a you know a, a product of that battle between i guess commerciality and what we wanted to bring to the table and it sort of landed where the five albums landed, you know what I mean? From the outside, being in a successful band seems like you're living the dream and you've got it made. But how much did you underestimate how much hard work it was going to be? Because I imagine some parents are looking at their 16, 17-year-olds right now going, yeah, they couldn't hack that. I could say I was 15 years old, so I had no idea about the real world at all. I mean, I went from literally sitting in my bedroom, writing songs at my keyboard singing to myself and I thought getting in the music business was just literally taking your keyboard putting it on the stage and having a bigger crowd and but I, I never actually acknowledged that you had to promote a record or that you had to do interviews or you had to I know it sounds ridiculous but I was just so naive doesn't you were 15 I, I just all I thought you go in the music business you just do music I didn't think of any of what we we're doing and um it was it was quite a shock how about you, Scott and Richie? Were, were, were you prepared for how much work it was going to be? No. Because you kind of came through kind of stage school kind of route, weren't you? So, so you yeah, I might did. have been I, a bit I, more prepared. I didn't. I don't think you can ever know how how demanding it's going to be and, how, and the hours that you're going to put in. Like You could have a rough idea, but let me tell you, that rough idea will soon vanish because we were works like dogs. And I do mean like dogs. I mean, we were you'd get an hour's kip if you were lucky and you you wouldn't know, you'd wake up, you wouldn't know what 
country you were in, let alone what hotel room you were in. You wouldn't, you'd have to look out of the window to try and like hopefully see something that represented that country, you know, like a, you know, a landmark. A road sign yeah. to see what continent you were on. Like, so if you saw sort of Chinese or Korean stuff, you'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm in Asia. Yeah, it was. It really was. <laughs> it's true that it sounds crazy. But no, it is true, genuinely, because we were so global, globe hopping so much. It was, yeah, it was. And it's not a nice feeling. It's a very panicky feeling when you don't know what continent you're on when you first wake up. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I remember being in Australia looking out of my window and luckily I see the uh, Sydney Opera House and I went, oh, I'm in Sydney. <laughs> Didn't have a clue. If, if I'd have looked out and I, I was in Scotland, I, I wouldn't have questioned it. I'd have gone, oh, I'm in Scotland. I've, I've spoken to quite a few people on the podcast who've I had similar experiences with Anthony Costa from Blue or Steps and talk about how a lot of it was just a blur for them and they just don't remember because they were just running it was like someone else's experience that's that's the only way i can explain it it was like when i look back or think back it feels like someone else did it not me which is kind of sad did you not feel a bit sad that you don't remember it or you didn't get to appreciate it as much as you could have or should have at the time you say you say you didn't appreciate it there were certain moments where you couldn't help but appreciate it like for argument's sake opening the brits with queen Doing anything with Queen was pretty cool, to be fair. But um, my, I mean, my favourite memory, and this I do treasure, was um, we were rehearsing We Will Rock You at Roger Taylor's house and we called a tea break and the mic was up and I sang the opening line to Jimi Hendrix, Hey Joe, down the mic. Brian's ears picked up and he's just gone, bam, 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 bam. Roger's picked up the sticks duh, 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 and I just jammed, Hey Joe, with Queen, um, I mean that's a great me memory that I e appreciated at the time. But yeah, like Sean sort of touched on earlier, there was so much other stuff that you didn't think you had to do. You thought you'd go on stage, do a bunch of performances, and kind of that's been in the music industry. But there was other stuff that was sort of like, oh, far more of your time was spent doing photo shoots and and this and that, which sounds cool, but you know. It, it just, it's very tiring. With all, a couple of that, with all the traveling, all the fans, all the question asking and everything after 18 hours days for two years. But we literally didn't get, we did, it sounds like we're just sort of, for somebody listening to this to probably think, what is wrong with these guys? Like, you know what I mean? I'm, not, I'm working nine to five, how can they not appreciate it? But the thing is, it's not that, it's just literally, we did not have one day. I think I remember going home for Christmas, mm. Christmas day, and like, that was literally it. They did not give us one day off you didn't even give us an hour off let alone a day yeah literally it's that thing of like never being able to sleep in your own bed yeah we never did ages we've never been able to sleep to be honest with you like literally we were so sleep deprived and so like i remember i would like fall asleep getting my hair and makeup done i would look like crap to be fair right and i'd wake up and i'd go oh you look like a pop star now you must be going to work on a positive we never experienced English winter because we were just permanently traveling. Hmm. I never remember getting a cold or, or being in, you know, we were just always in good weather, weren't we? So, you know, it had its pros. I remember when Zane left One Direction, one of the reasons he gave was because he didn't think their music was 
cool, in inverted commas, and it wasn't the type of music guys specifically would kick back and listen to. Did those kind of thoughts ever cross your mind or maybe not because you were so heavily involved in writing your own songs? Yeah, I, I think in a, in a way it was kind of the opposite to how he felt in a sense because for the time, certainly when we came out, other than I suppose E17 a few years before us, it was all ballads. It was usually Irish lads singing really sweet, nice ballads. So in that sense, we were given license to go and sort of tear up that rule book a little bit. Mm. So, you know, like using the Joan Jett riff on Everybody Get Up, using Last Night the DJ Saved My Life on If You're Getting Down, was kind of, um, you know, quite cool. And, you know, we, we know from feedback at the time from lads of our own age, it was okay for them to like us. Um, you know, if, if they're at school or college or whatever. So in that sense, not maybe as bad as for, they maybe felt it. And as we know, the band called it a day in 2001. And although it had taken its toll on you all in, in terms of your health, I guess it was better to bow at your peak rather than kind of like limp out the back door after being dropped by your label or something like that. Yeah, we kind of see, like, you know, at, at the time it was like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to, you know, the, 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 the media story, if you like, was, oh, yeah, no, we're going to bail out at number one because that's what we want to do. But in reality, we're all a bit poorly, really, you know. And um, So in a sense, you were kind of limping out the door, just not on the way. Uh... Yeah, just after two weeks at number one. Yeah, like now, nowadays, if you were struggling with your mental health and you was having a breakdown, you'd have someone put their arm around you and go, it's okay. We can look after you. Um, you know, we'll get you the help you need. We'll pause everything that you're doing now, and we'll move everything out of the schedule, and we'll make sure that you're okay because your health matters first and foremost. Mm. Unfortunately, it wasn't like that in our era. Um, we were almost like the guinea pigs of of the '90s, and they've learned from their, their mistakes. And you know, unfortunately, we we were the the, the guinea pigs. You know, and Nowadays, it wouldn't go on. If you were as poorly as we were, you know, now, you'd get the help you needed because everyone's talking about mental health, thank God. They weren't talking about it then. It, weren't, it was a thing, but it weren't a thing. Mm. Final question in the nostalgia zone. Can you imagine what five would have been like if Russell Brand had actually made the cut at his audition to get into the band? Mental. Even more mental than it, than, than it already was. <laughs> People have no idea. Love a bit of Russell Brand. Love a bit of Russell Brand. You could have been called Six. Could have been. Could have been. Could have been. (laughs) Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. So unfortunately, we do have limited time as you are busy boys today. So apologies if this seems like a bit of a whistle-stop tour for each of you encompassing your lives for the past 20 years. Uh, But Sean, we'll start with you. Um, Of course, you left the group a few months before it officially disbanded and it's well known that you struggled um, and experienced a breakdown towards the end. But does it feel strange that fans have nothing but happy memories of Five at the time, whereas they weren't as happy for you? Um... No, 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 I don't think so. No, I don't think it's strange. No. Um, and I know what you're saying, but I mean, I remember when we, um, we played the uh, Amersmith Apollo on the big reunion. We first come back and when, and when I went outside and I spoke to some fans, the thing is for them, they hadn't seen each other. Like it was a reunion for us. They hadn't seen each other for like maybe 10 years or however, however long we hadn't been together because they came together through the band. 
coming, you know, they became friends following the band. And then they went to separate ways when we disbanded. And then when we got back together, they come to the gig. And, they, and I think it was just a, like a bit of a, I wouldn't say we were, a, it was a cult, but it's just like a bit of a movement in, in some sort of weird pop way. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and then you um, appeared on The Voice in 2012, yeah. but unfortunately the coaches didn't turn for you. And, and that was a big risk for you to take to be on the show. But given that historically no one from The Voice in the UK has really gone on to have a lucrative career, yeah. except Becky Hill, I think, um, if the chairs had turned, do you think it would have taken you on a different path? Uh, probably. The thing is, before I went on The Voice, the big reunion was spoke about and there was a lot of um and ah in. We weren't sure if it was going to happen. Had I known that five was going to definitely happen, the voice wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have bothered doing it. But um, I'm glad that they didn't turn around. And I'm glad that I uh, did what I wanted to do. I'm glad I sang the song that I sang. I'm glad I did it my way. Because I mean, like the, at the auditions, I remember the vocal coach and that they were saying, you need to sing something like a much bigger chorus. Like that's what the show's about. You need to like, have a big high moment and then they turn around. But for me... I'd had so many regrets about five in the past and I just hadn't, I felt like I hadn't really just shown who I was that I know it sounds, it sounds like I'm saying it because they didn't turn around and it's, it's, and it's a bit hindsight, but I really didn't go into it thinking I'm going to do this and do that to try and win the show. I genuinely thought I just want to sing as me on the TV and there's a lot of people watching and that's it. I just wanted to sing the song. I want to, I want to interject there, Sean, because I remember watching that watching that show and I couldn't couldn't be prouder then and now of that performance because that's exactly what Sean did for me he went on there to be Sean Condon not not Sean from five not a singing not giving them what they want or what they thought that everyone wanted to see he just wanted to play his piano sit there and be Sean Condon and the judges didn't turn around it didn't matter to me they didn't turn around because they did not turn around because his, his vocal was rubbish. His vocal was incredible, as in every note was bang on. He played the piano amazingly. It showed a true representation of himself. And I think it was, it was a work of art, that performance. I'll take that. I'll take that, mate. I'll take that. <laughs> um, I will take that. Sean, you've managed to live your life pretty under the radar over the past 20 years. I'm not going to lie. It was a challenge to research you for today. Um, but you're you're not on Instagram. And although you are on Twitter, you had a bit of a hiatus from the end of 2018 until recently when you announced the, the new music. Um, mm. And even then, you mostly tweeted about football. Um, what was <laughs> what was the... Uh, this is, oh, actually, and you had some like great one-liners as well, like... Why don't we see enough hedgehogs? Or I can't do frisbees. Um, great. But, um, <laughs> Very profound, Sean. Very profound. <laughs> what was the decision, uh, or what was that decision to stay out of the social media spotlight influenced by? Um, I don't know. I just think I'm, I'm not a really an outwardly sort of talkative person in that way. And I'd sometimes I, I want to tweet and the guys say, you need to be a bit more active on social media. But I go to do it and I think, I mean, I start boring myself. Do you know what I mean? So I'm thinking people don't want to read that. I understand what you mean because I see some people's posts that I know, like, you know, and, I, you know, they're, they're great people. But I think to myself, why does anyone care, for instance, what sandwich I'm eating right now? Why is that relevant to anybody? So I'm the same. I'll stop myself posting certain things that other people would just keep posting. I don't know. I'm, I, I feel a bit weird about social media sometimes. Mm. I'm quite naturally uh, private and shy as well. And the thing is with uh, the five fans is 
luckily they um, accept that from me because I'm. If, if you're at a gig or you're at a hotel or you're, you're around, I'm very. I'm always very, very open, very, very talkative in person. I'm just not very, very good at the social media side of things. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Scott, your turn. Literally the day after the band split in 2001, you married your childhood sweetheart and initially swapped fame for a life of domestic bliss. Um, you were still only 21 at the time, uh, very mind, but your wedding day must have been emotional for a whole bunch of reasons. It was uh, it was an amazing day. It was an emotional day for several reasons. Obviously, I was marrying the love of my life and you know, it was, it was incredible. And, you know, it was like for me, leaving five and struggling like I was and going through all the anxiety and the, you know, the sort of mental breakdown, if you like, I, I needed that. I needed to be grounded and I needed to start a new beginning. So in such a weird way, it was like shutting the door on fame and then opening a new life with, you know, my, my son had just been born. He was two months old and I felt like I had something to, to carry on for and get better. And it was incredible. Um, experience to to be able to to do that with with Kerry and I think we've um we've stood the test of time and we're still here so she I mean I don't know what she's doing she, she needs a medal that woman for still being here <laughs> but yeah um yeah I'm very grateful as do we yeah <laughs> and to be fair Scott I don't think your cooking's that bad I make a mean pizza <laughs> so while you were in the band, you were living with a type of eating disorder. Um, and I guess the easiest way to describe it is a food phobia. Yeah. Um, I think it's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, um, which saw you bring tins of tomato soup on tour with you because you couldn't eat anything else. Um, but it's something that you've lived with most of your life until only recently when you sought treatment for it. Can you talk a bit about that and how life has changed since? Um, I can, but firstly, before I do so, I want to say have all the interviews I've ever done, you have done the most research I've I've ever known, and I'm I'm amazed by you. you really do know. <laughs> Thank it's you. impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. Very impressive. And I like this question because that is true. And I don't want to cut in on his, his thing, but it, no one's really said that it is a disorder. They just said it used to just say it was weird. Yeah, but it is a disorder. So very, very, very well, uh, very well put. Anyway, carry on, Scott. Yeah, um, it was. Thanks, Sean. Um, it was. It was really tricky. And you know, I remember. I remember a time very, very vividly in the band where we had our first ever break, and it was an it was a forced break. Really, we had. Um, we were meant to be going to with with somewhere like Japan or something, and we were meant. We were in Japan. Yeah, and we were going to Taipei, if I remember correctly. Uh, Taiwan. Yeah, um, Taipei Ta or yeah. Taiwan, somewhere no. like that. And we were laying on the floor. It was me and me and Rich, I think. Me, Rich, and Abs, it might have been. We love it laying on the floor, looking up at the stars, and we just said, "We can't go. We can't go. We're so we're so tired." And we said, "Enough's enough." If I'm re I'm remembering that right, aren't I, Rich? You are, but I'm not quite sure how this relates to the food. Yeah, you're talking about food. How, what's that got to do with tomato soup? Let me let me tell you. So I got we I got on a plane and I met Kerry and my mum and dad and my my, my siblings in America. And when my mum looked at me, she cried because I was so thin because I hadn't I've not been eating at all. And yeah, so so hard for me to get a meal you know it was even hard for the boys because you kind of had to grab as you went and you had to work you know when you was at work but I couldn't grab as I went because I was so fussy because 
you know, I didn't even know it was food disorder at the time. I just thought I was fussy. And she cried and, you know, I was unrecognizable because I was so skinny. And I remember, I remember once, like literally marching into, I was in Germany and I remember marching into a kitchen in a hotel and saying, get out of my way, get out of my way. I just, I want to cook my soup. I want to cook my soup, swearing at the, um, at the people to get out of my way. And um, the chef was like trying to get me out of the way and he was trying to help me. He wanted to put like herbs in me tomato soup. And I remember just shouting at him, like, I won't swear, but I remember going, just let me cook my soup. Just let me cook my soup. And, and I cooked my soup on this hob and he's trying to put butter in it. And I was like, I don't want it. And I just warmed it up and I ate my soup. And I, I took a bread roll and I just went back to my room. And I remember thinking, like, well, why can't people just understand this is all I like? And um, I went back to my room and ate my soup. Um, and it, as you say, it was after the band. And not that many years ago, I'd probably say about four years ago, I went to see a hypnotherapist and I had some um, hypnotherapy. And it was, and it, what it made me do is it, it took me back to the place where it all started. And, and uh, what that was, was when I was a kid. And um, my nan had made me a tuna sandwich and my, my granddad had swapped the tuna sandwich for one that had salad cream in it. And I bit into it and I projectile vomited everywhere. And the psychiatrist woman took it back to that time when I was, I was only small, probably about six or seven. And it was from that moment I, got, I had this genuine fear of food. It started with this fear of salad cream to the point where, like my sisters would, run at me with salad cream bottle and I would cry and run away because I was so scared mm. of it. And even now, even, even I eat lots more food and I'm so much better and I don't have to, you know, Kerry doesn't have to blend my food anymore. Like she used to blend all the vegetables into a bag bowl. So I'd eat, get my vegetables. Doesn't have to do that anymore. I've, I've had an Indian. I've had a, you know, I've had a Chinese. I'm, you know, I'm enjoying food. I'm finding foods for the first time. I'm still scared of salad cream physically scared of salad cream and mayonnaise. So moving on to something a bit a bit more positive and happy, because um, as well as as the music side, yeah, you also co-host the weekday drive time show on Radio Essex. And you recently launched a new podcast called The A to Z of Men, which is very funny looking at the inner workings of the male brain. And I know I learned something new through your latest episode. Um, <laughs> which was what? What did you learn? Pistures. Yeah, yeah. I, I, That's I, I, my thing that I've learned. <laughs> pistures. <laughs> I'm so glad that when I'm talking about pistures, that I can actually say that it wasn't me that said it. It was my co-host, Chris Brooks, who's one of my best friends. And, um, yeah, we're really proud of the podcast. And as you say, it's the uh, the inner workings of a man's mind. And it's, it's kind of to give a couple that, that moment where, you know, Wow, I actually understand you a little bit more now because I've got these two guys that are telling me how your brain works. And um, it, it's for women and men, you know, to, to maybe solve an argument or make an argument. But we, we do, as much as it is in the comedy bracket of podcasts, we are actually trying to spread a message as well. You know, like we, you know, F's out um, today, funny enough, and when we're talking about how important it is to have a friend and, you know, how important it is to, to speak to someone if you're struggling and, you know, and, and, and I already know I'm going to go for mental health and, you know, the comedy side of it's fantastic, but we really do. We can help just one person that picks mm. up a phone to their friend instead of doing something that they, you know, taking their own life or whatever. We do go that deep as well as talking about pistures and all the things that we mentioned. It's, um, 
it's actually to to have both sides of it and actually have the comedy, but also actually um, have something serious there as well. And the radio show only works because of the friendship that me and Chris have got. And because you play five songs. Yeah, we do. We do play five songs a lot. Um, but no, it, I, like, I don't think I could necessarily be a good presenter without Chris. Our friendship works so well. Um, and I think that comes across on the radio. And, and that's kind of why Five works so well, because the friendship that me and Sean and Rich have got, I think that when we're on the stage, people can look at us and see that we're loving it and see that we're enjoying each other's company. So that works with Five, it works on the radio, it works with the podcast because... It's genuine. You can't fake it, it's genuine. And when people are listening to the podcast, listening to the radio or watching Five on stage, they know we're doing it because we want to. All of them things I'm doing because I genuinely love the people I'm doing them with. Um, last but not least, moving on to hardcore pork crackling lover Richie. Yeah. <laughs> um, a few musical guests I've had on the podcast have spoken about how after their band split or they were dropped by their label, they didn't really know what to do with themselves because going mm. from being very famous to not very famous anymore was hard and they didn't get any help to support them through it. No. You moved to Australia after the band split. Was that a case of trying to get as far away as possible from it all? Um Okay, so for me, my struggle, it wasn't so much about having been famous. That was a part of it. But obviously, I've analysed it a lot over the years. Mm. It was that I was possibly the most driven person I've ever met as a teen and as a kid. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew why I wanted to do it. And it was like a burning passion. And during the period in the band, as things unfolded and, you know, We've, we've touched on it in, in this chat, you know, like the dream became a nightmare. I still had it in me a little bit, but there was a lot of fear, a lot of negative emotion associated with it. So I go in the studio and I do a few bits and I almost self-sabotage a little bit as well in that, you know, if things started going well, I don't know, it just freaked me out. I'd be like, I was scared of success. I was scared of, because when success happens, it all goes to part and things bad. It was almost an association. Should have just gone and seen a counsellor, probably in hindsight, you know. But um, yeah, so it was it was the loss of like a, a vision and a focus and something to to sort of. Then I was I felt like uh, I felt like I was in a a very small wooden boat on a very choppy ocean with no oars and just being pushed around by the wind and the waves. Um, so, yeah, and I've forgotten exactly what exactly your question exactly was now. It, it was just, were you trying to get literally geographically as far away as possible? Yeah, so I used to always say as well, I was trying to get back to feel and connect with the person I was before the band. And so every time, you know, you go out and you go to the supermarket or whatever and people are pointing and it's not their fault, they just see somebody that they recognise off the telly or whatever. It used to break me when they'd say, hey, what are you doing now? And you have to put a smile and you go, oh, well, this and that. But actually it would like really hurt me inside. Not their fault, but it would just be like, because I'd berate myself for not knowing what I was doing now mm. and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So yeah, uh, the move was very much, I used to say like, I'm living a ghost. There's a, it's like, I'm constantly reminded and I just need to get away from that. So, yeah, it was a big part of that was just a mental sort of break from being in the UK and being rich from five. 
So while you were in Australia, you became a sommelier and you opened your own bar. So how did you find the experience of running your own business? And have you been able to bring any of the lessons learned back into the music industry? Um, Only drinking. (laughs) Well, I'd I'd like to um, get rid of this myth is that actually I'm not a sommelier. I don't know where this came from. Is the internet lying? The internet. I don't even know what one is. An expert on wine. I know a little bit about wine. No, he's not. He's not that he's not one of them then. No, I know a little <laughs> bit about wine, especially Australian wine, but I'm not a sommelier. However, what did it teach? You did open a bar. <laughs> I did open a bar. And do you know what? Again, like I say, I'm somebody who likes to have a focus and things like that. So in that sense, it was good because I had a big focus and a big thing, you know, that, that we had to do. But uh, I saw a ghost once in the bar. Oh. But that's a different story. You sure you had too much too much liquor no 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 it's very strange this light flew past and then it went up to the wall and then one of the wall lights the bulb exploded and me and a mate saw it you need a sparky you need a sparky <laughs> no we ran away we were like what what was that um but yeah so in that sense you know it was it was just good to, i like to be busy i like to have have a focus and so did you have did you learn any lessons in business that you've been able to apply to the music industry since um I think just just run a tight ship, you know, approach things with passion and yeah, just that really, just, you know, just turn up. If you keep turning up, keep doing what you're doing, you will eventually get there, you know. I spotted you have a bit of a passion for photography and you have an Instagram account that features some brooding pictures of Scott, (laughs) amongst other things, Um, (laughs) but you haven't added to it for a few years. Might it be something you return to? Yeah, maybe. What happened was I had a child um, and that kind of, you know, it just makes it more difficult when you're carrying like nappies and all the things around your photography equipment end up getting left behind. Um, And I might come back to it a little bit um, at some point. Uh, But, uh, you know, yeah, at the moment, it's all about music, um, obviously, with the new material coming out and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, but maybe. I did really enjoy it. I did really enjoy it as a creative outlet. And you know what, Rich? You were really, you were really good at it, you know? Mm, no, I was, I was getting good at it. And I, I did qualifications in it and stuff like that. And then, yeah, like I said, I just had a kid. And, and I don't know, I, I've not picked it back up again after those toddler years. We are riding on a wave, we hit the shore. There are signs along the way. But if we had our time again, we'd realize These are real days, real times of our lives When you were here, I watched time go Okay, so let's talk about your music now, because 20 years later, you have a new album of tracks coming out in January called Time and is available to pre-order from 3rd of December. And the title track is also out this week. So tell me more about the sound of this album, because it's a bit different to the five sound we're used to, which I guess you'd expect because time has moved on and music trends have changed in that time. Yeah, I mean, we just we wanted to uh, obviously... I mean, not not in a contrived way. It sort of just came out natural. I mean, it's sort of who we are as people is we're still we're still very immature for our age, 
but we're also, you know, we're older now, we're parents, so there's a maturity to us as well. We're a, probably, we show our sensitive side a lot more than we did when we were young lads. And I suppose the album reflects that, do you know what I mean? There's some, there's some edgy songs, um, there's some danceable songs, there's some sort of immature, uh, fun songs. But then we've got songs like the one that's out this week, Time, which is very, very, uh, shows a mature, sensitive side. And it's got a lot of a depth that we have never probably shown before. In the current day and age of fragmented listening with streaming and music on demand, is crafting an album in terms of its flow, having a beginning, middle and end still a consideration for you? Do you know what? That's a very good question. And it's something that um, I've thought long and hard about and uh, I've been speaking to the boys about. And um, it's because you can shuffle an album now on Spotify, it almost feels like the order doesn't matter. But that's very, very lazy, right? So in my mind, I don't care that they can shuffle it. That's there, that's down to them. But I'm still going to make sure that this album is put in the order that I think it belongs in. And I would encourage people to listen to the album in the way that we put the songs, because that will be the, the correct journey and the correct message that goes through it. Just like a almost like a set when when you're doing a live show. I think it's very important to have something that goes through it and go, you know, you have your big moments, your low, you know, your low moments, your quieter moments, your dancing moments. So um, there is going to be an order. Listen to it in order. <laughs> and you're going on tour next year too. How, how are the old dance moves now you're 20 years older? They don't get any easier. We're still doing them. And I'm going to be honest, th there's a chorus of if you're getting down and there's, there's no nice words to say for this. I'm going to say it. If you have to bleep it, bleep it. But you've said pisses. So I don't think you can get much worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's got like a slut drop in it, right? That's fine. You can say slut drop. Yeah, yeah. It's got a slut drop in it and then we spin round. I don't know why that move was ever invented in our song, but it is. So it's in the second half of the chorus. And we've cut it out completely, as in... The knees hurt that much. He can't get up again. <laughs> it, it originally got taken out because Rich had a bit of a um, problem with his knee. He had some ligament damage. I've always had problems with my knees, like my ligaments are gone. And I like to say that it's like an old football injury. But in reality, my knees hurt because I've done too much boy band dancing. Because you've done too much slut dropping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah, I've done too much slut dropping in my time and I've got bad knees. So, yeah. That's it. Don't worry, that's not going to be your soundbite for this whole interview. <laughs> I almost know that that's the soundbite. It's not going to be the soundbite. <laughs> Just before we finish up, please tell me the story about the time you were in a hotel room with Liam Gallagher in Brazil, because it's not quite the type of rock and roll behaviour you'd expect. Oh, mate, it's the best. That's one of the best stories ever, and it's true. So we are getting, we're in Rio in Brazil and we are getting drunk with um, Liam Gallagher and um, he's an hilarious guy he was such a nice guy we got on really well Noel didn't really want to know but Liam Liam was game for a few beers and um, and funny enough my wife Kerry was there we're in, we're in the room and every time he was he was going through a really really sort of vicious breakup at the time with um, Patsy Kensit mm. every time he said a derogatory word about Patsy Kensit he looked at Kerry, my wife, and he went, no offence, love. And then from absolutely nowhere, he pulls out from his bag a boppet, 
bop it, twist it, pull it. And and I'm thinking, why has Liam Gallagher got a bop it on tour? This is this is not rock and roll. And we're playing bop it in his room, and we're all very drunk, and he's very very um very into this game. Which is laying on Liam Gallagher's bed, singing "Yellow" by Coldplay, but he's singing it extremely badly because he's he's had too much to drink, and he's singing the words. It was all yellow and blue <laughs> for absolutely no reason. And then Sean goes up to Liam Gallagher and goes to him, "Mate, your sideburns need trimming." <laughs> Sean points directly on Liam Gallagher's face to where Sean believes his sideburns should end. <laughs> and I'm standing there thinking, oh, my God, please don't touch Liam Gallagher's face, Sean, please don't touch his face, please don't touch his face. And he's literally going, right there, man, right there, right there. And Liam Gallagher's going, ah, get on. And they start having this argument. Oh, no, it was going so well. This is going to end badly. Then Sean disappears to go and get us some drinks. They have a hug. It's no problem. <laughs> and then we're on the balcony and Liam Gallagher is playing one of the albums that's not out yet. Uh, I think it was the second album. We might have been like definitely maybe or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, he's playing the album and every song that he wrote, he says, oh, this one's fucking legendary. Absolutely fucking legendary. And everyone that Noel wrote, he says, this one's shite. <laughs> shite. And then the last bit of the story is from absolutely nowhere, Sean's now downstairs getting us around the drinks and he's shouting up to Liam Gallagher, you still need your sideburns trimmed, Liam? <laughs> and I'm thinking, please stop, please stop. But it goes down as, as one of my funniest ever memories. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your time today. I know it can be a logistical nightmare getting everyone together at the same time, so I really appreciate it. But best of luck with Time, the new album and single, and see you on the road next year. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. See you later. Thanks so much again to Sean, Scott and Richie for chatting with me and apologies if you were a little bit offended by some of the cheeky chat we had. Five's new single, Time, is out on the 26th of November, but you can pre-order it now, as can you pre-order their new album, also called Time, from the 3rd of December. And if you want to see them in person, keep an eye out for tour dates in 2022. You can find all this information and more in the podcast show notes. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, visit the shop or support pages at celebritycatchup.com where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like, which will help with the running costs and keep it free of charge. And please don't keep the podcast to yourself. Do share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.